Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you right now. How sweet is it to worship Jesus together? Man, it's the best thing in the whole world. <laughs> Got it. Um, we have a couple extra seats tucked up here if you need a seat uh, or if you're hard of hearing. We understand that. This microphone is actually for people online. So if you're like, why can't we hear? It's because uh, that's the, the, what the city has requested of us. So I'll do my best to project, but um, I am so excited to be with you and to study the Word of God with you. Um, I, before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that we are here as guests of Faith Lutheran Church. Um, some of them are here with us. We just want to thank you guys for having us, allowing us to worship. Thank you. Yeah. You may not know this, but we, we have probably 50 people who have volunteered to make this happen, which is unnecessary but amazing. So we just can't, couldn't be here with all of you guys and your gifts and your support, the technology, the chairs, all the things that went into this. So we are here as a, a joint effort as the body of Christ. And each one of you, if you're a Christian, has, has been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And uh, you ought to use those gifts to serve. So we're excited to see what God has for us as a church as you discover those gifts and as we are served by you, by the gifts that God has given you. Um, now, I, I want to acknowledge this, that no matter um, who you are, if, uh, if you have been worshiping with us for some time or if you're just a guest, uh, I want to acknowledge that we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot this past year or so. Um, almost... Two years ago, I was talking with some leaders at Reality Carpinteria about what book of the Bible to study. And we had an idea that some changes were coming in the leadership. And we, we landed on, hey, what better place to be than at the feet of Jesus in the Gospel of John? And so that's why we committed to the Gospel of John. And that's where we've been week in and week out. And, and it was at Jesus' feet that many of us were kind of sustained through a difficult leadership transition. Um, little did we know 2020 was around the corner. And so we continued week after week to study the gospel of John, to sit at the feet of Jesus for 2020 and all that it brought for, for COVID, the fact that we couldn't see one another or worship one another, for all the cultural chaos and the racial stuff going on. We just week after week, we fed uh, on the gospel of John. It, it sustained us. And little would we know that the Lord would bring this church about. This, was, this is the Lord's idea and doing. This is no person's idea or doing. And, and it, will, it will be the gospel of John that we are going to continue to feast on. Uh, maybe until he comes back, honestly. We'll see how long it takes us. But we're going to be in the gospel of John together. And so I want to invite you to turn to the, the very next text that we had up for us. That's John chapter 12. And we will be reading verses 31 to 36 together. Now, I'm so excited to continue to just feast on the gospel of John, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Let's read verses 31 through 36. We'll have a few more weeks likely in John chapter 12 and then it's pretty amazing where we'll, we'll end up. We'll be uh, in John 13 to 17, 
really, as we, as we start worshiping together, we're going to be literally sitting at the feet of Jesus in the upper room discourse. John 13 to 17 is the night before the cross, the crucifixion. This, this is when John the apostle who wrote this was resting on the chest of Jesus, taking in what Jesus had to say from John 13 to 17. So that's coming our way in just a few weeks, but we have some more work to do in John chapter 12. So let's read together John 12, verses 31 through 36. This is Jesus speaking. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, I want, I want you to notice something as we begin. In verse 35, Jesus makes an illustration. He says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. It's kind of a self-evident statement to us. However, at that time in history, people didn't have iPhone flashlights in their pockets and streetlights and electricity. If, if they got caught outside in the dark, they were outside in the dark. They had, they had no way to realize where is the street and where is the path and where am I going? This is a real reality back then. If you got caught in the dark, you were lost. You didn't know where you were going. Maybe they would have a simple oil lantern. Hopefully they are prepared. But, but if you got caught in the dark, you were in real trouble. It's almost an experience we, we, we don't even can't really comprehend in our day and age, but, but this is a real danger. Uh, my wife and I love to camp, and a few years back we were camping in Yosemite in the springtime. It was still pretty cold, and we wanted to go on a hike up to the top of Yosemite Falls. And, you know, you're on vacation, and I'm not a morning person, and so we get going kind of late, and, and then, you know, we finally, it's like 12, 1, 2, like we should probably get on the hike, and so we finally get going. We're definitely the last people on the trail. We make it to the top. You're watching like the sunset. It's amazing. There's snow. And then we're like, yeah, we need to get going. So we head out. We're, we're going down the trail and it gets dark. Now we were prepared. We had our headlamps and whatnot, but it is cold and it is dark. And as we're about, I don't know, halfway down, it's pitch black. We come across a pretty elderly man sitting down on the trail. And this man was not prepared. He didn't have a light. And this trail is very steep. It's very treacherous. You can't, I mean, you're taking some big steps for a couple of miles. And he realized, I am in trouble. And the best thing I can do to not die is sit here until the morning comes. 
if I can survive this cold night in Yosemite, I'll just wait right here. And we were the last people on the trail. And if we didn't get to him, he would have been there all night long. It would have been a pretty bad situation. And thankfully, we had our lights and we walked down together. But it was one of those rare times when you realize, wow, that's pretty dangerous to be caught without light. Now, what is true of the physical world? Listen, it's also true about the spiritual world. There is nothing worse than being lost in the dark, spiritually speaking. No idea where you're going. No idea where the danger may be, where there's, where there's going to be a cliff. Just lost and alone and confused. And it's a self-evident statement, but I'll say it anyways. We are living in a world that is lost in the dark, spiritually speaking. That's not even controversial to say. There is so much confusion about what is true and what is false about what is good and beautiful and what is wrong and evil. There is real confusion. It's self-evident. Watch the news, read the news for 30 seconds. It'll make you sick to your stomach. It is self-evident we live in a world that is lost in the dark. And on top of that, Christians know not only are we lost in the dark, There is a personal evil in the world. Personal evil. One that actively works to keep people in the dark. To confuse people over what is true, what is right, and what is wrong. We live in a dark world. In a culture that is wandering, not knowing where to go. The words of Jesus Hold true. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And I want to make this personal for a minute. Many of us, many of you, are wandering in the dark right now. Struggling to know what to believe or who to listen to or where to go. Or maybe you're just so stuck in sin, you're just wandering in the darkness. And if all we ever do as humanity is trust our own individual judgment on these matters, we're just wandering around in the dark. So what's what's the solution? What's the hope? Where can we find light? Is there light? Is there hope? Yes, there is. Jesus also says in verse 35, the light is among you a little while longer. There is light. And it's also personal. His name is Jesus. There is light. There is hope. There's a way to know what is true and right and beautiful to light the way of life so you can know where to go and where not to go. The light is among you a little while longer. You know, that's a theme John develops throughout his entire gospel, the light. 
and the dark. In the beginning, in the prelude of John chapter 1, he says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It would be like the world is lost on that trail and they see this light in the distance. There's hope. There's something coming. Jesus stands up and says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But listen, the tragedy of the gospel of John and the tragedy of human history is that not all people receive the light. The light shows up and people say, I'm good. I don't need light. I'm not lost. I know the way to go. We read in John chapter 1, in that prelude, right after it says the light comes, it says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's the tragedy of the gospel of John and of human history. The light showed up and he was rejected. And that brings us to our text in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is actually the, the final chapter in the Gospel of John, of Jesus' public ministry. This, what Jesus is saying right here in, in John chapter 12, is the last that the world will hear this light. This the last time they'll see it. It's the last time they'll see him until he's lifted up on a cross. Chapter 12, this is the last time he's teaching the crowds. It's the last time he's begging them to come to him. These are his final words to the crowd. And if you remember earlier in John 12, he, he enters into Jerusalem in a pretty dramatic fashion. It was Passover week. There are millions of people there. And Jesus shows up as the expectations were very high. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe he's going to deliver us from Rome. Maybe the kingdom is coming this week. And yet he shows up in, in characteristic Jesus fashion. Rather than riding in, on this white war horse, which everyone would expect the Messiah to do. He rides in on a baby donkey, which means he would have been lower than everyone standing up. It's kind of like a ridiculous picture. Here comes the king, and you're like, well, I don't see him. Where is he? He's down there? What's he doing? Jesus shows up, and he's making a statement. I'm not like the world thinks I should be. The kingdom is not the way the kingdom of the world operates. I am the Messiah, but I'm not the kind of Messiah you want or hope for or expect. He's letting the crowd down. They're beginning to, to, to reject him. Who is this guy? Who is this son of man? We read in our text. And so Jesus comes into town. We know from other gospels, he clears out the temple. And then he, he has a, a little bit of teaching left in, in the final week of his life. In John 12, we pick up just some of it. We read in John 12 that the Greeks came to him and it made Jesus think, man, the nations are coming in. The kingdom is coming. But what Jesus did is, as everyone's excited and they're trying to talk to him and they're, they're trying to like, come on, Jesus, 
do your thing, what he begins to do is start speaking about his death. What a, what a buzzkill. What are you doing, Jesus? He's like, come on, let's like, everyone wants to go. And, and you start talking about your death and laying down your life. And what do you, come on, Jesus. And then in verse 27, Jesus is thinking about the cross. And remember, we read, now is my soul troubled. The cross was a big deal to the perfect Son of God who would go bear the sins of his people and be rejected by his Father. It troubled his soul. It troubled him. And so Jesus is coaching himself in, in John 27, 28, my soul's troubled. What shall I say? And, and Jesus coaches himself. Do you know what? I am going to live for the glory of my Father and not my immediate desires. And so he's praying and, and he says, Father, glorify your name. And for only the third recorded time, heaven opens up and God the Father speaks to his Son and reassures him and says, I have glorified it, meaning, Jesus, you've been glorifying me, and I will glorify it, meaning, when you are obedient to me and you die on the cross, I will glorify myself through you, Jesus. Jesus has the cross on his mind, and the words of the Father as we come to verse 31. And what we, what we come to in our text, in our five verses... As, as Jesus is thinking about the cross. Jesus, in these six verses, he speaks of five, five things that will occur as he goes to the cross. In a sense, he's even coaching himself. He's remembering why he's going to the cross, what the cross means. As Travis prayed, we, we are committed, as Paul was, to preach Christ and him crucified. And in this text, Jesus is explaining what does the cross mean? What does it accomplish? What happens when Jesus is lifted up on the cross? What's the effect when Jesus is lifted up on the cross? And so he speaks five things. And I'll be honest with you, we're probably going to get through two of them today. And we'll have a part two next Sunday. That's just how it went. So praise God, it was nice and rich. So number one, the first thing. That happens when Jesus is lifted on the cross as we began in verse 31. If you're taking notes, this is one of five things. The first thing that happens is the world is judged. Let's read it. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. For many of us, it sounds strange hearing that word coming from that mouth. Jesus, did you just say judgment? It's easy for us to pick and choose what words of Jesus we like and neglect all of his teaching, neglect actually the whole Bible is his teaching. And yet Jesus begins when he's lifted up, it's time for the judgment of the world. If you will, turn with me a few chapters back to John 3. 
If you have a Bible, I especially recommend bringing a physical Bible so when we do this, you can see I'm not making things up here. We're all familiar with John 3, and we love John 3.16 as we should. It is the greatest summary of the gospel in probably the entire Bible. For God so loved the world. Well, if God loves the world, how could Jesus then say, well, now the world's going to be judged? What does it mean? And, and to further complicate things, look at the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's true. He didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He did send Jesus to rescue the world. But let's just practice good Bible reading. Let's keep going. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen his works have been carried out in God. Listen, Jesus came to the world because we were all in darkness. Not a single one of us here was doing fine. We were all in darkness. We were all born in sin and living in sin, in rebellion to God. And yet God loves people like that, people like you, people like me. He loves self-righteous sinners, and he loves wicked sinners. He loves scoffers, the sexually immoral, the proud, the arrogant. He loves sinners. But they're still sinners. They needed to be rescued from their sin. So he came as a light to save sinners. He came to lay down his life for sinners. Remember what he said, I didn't come for righteous people. That doesn't make sense. They don't need a savior. He came for sinners whom he loves. And so he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law and he laid his life down like an Old Testament sacrifice, a burnt offering. All the wrath of God was poured on him so that whoever would trust in him could be rescued from their sin, from the holiness of God. Praise God, that's the gospel that's available for everyone. Yet, John 3, 18 tells us, but if you reject that offer, what else is there but to be left with yourself and a holy God? What else is there? And so here in John chapter 12, Jesus is pleading with people in the darkness, come out and into the light. He's pleading with them. He's saying, when I'm lifted up on the cross, it speaks to the judgment of the world. And, and now why, what's the connection there? Why, why is the cross equal the judgment of the world? Well, think of it this way. 
The cross reveals the world in its utter folly. The moment the world nailed Jesus to the cross was literally the lowest point in human history. <laughs> that, was the, that was the worst thing the world has ever done. This is a perfect man who came only healing and feeding and teaching and blessing. And we killed him. That's how the world responds to the light. That's how the world historically responded. He died. He was rejected. The cross reveals the world in its utter low point. How does humanity respond to perfection? We kill it. The cross is the judgment of the world. It reveals the folly of the world apart from God. The author of life came, the one who gave these Roman soldiers breath, and they killed him. The cross exposes the world for what it is apart from God. It's morally and spiritually bankrupt. When the world rejects Jesus, when a person rejects Jesus, it's as if we're hanging over a cliff on a rope and we saw the rope. We cut ourselves off from salvation, the very thing that was sustaining us. That's why the cross is the, the judgment of the world. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll just be honest. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's important that you see the way Jesus speaks about the world. And it's important that we see, I don't know the way to put it, the folly of looking to the world for comfort, for salvation, for wisdom, for relationships. It's important we see it. Jesus is saying, don't go there. That's not the way to go. And I want to apply this just through a handful of scriptures for us. And we're just going to let the Bible apply this for us. So, you may need quick hands. If not, you can just listen. But if you're able, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. This is the same author, obviously, John. The Apostle John also wrote these letters to some Christians. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. <clears throat> this is now John as an older man, as a pastor, who heard these words of Jesus. And now he's, he's pastoring people. Listen to, what, look to what John, the pastor, says. 1 John chapter 2, we'll read verse 15 to 18. Hear the pastor, John, but also hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you. <clears throat> We're applying here what it is that the world is judged. 1 John chapter 2, let me take a drink real quick. Hey, this is how Jesus did it. <laughs> For sure there were dogs. Okay. John chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Guys, hear a pastor pleading with, your, with you for your good. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Just hear that. Hear this pastor saying, don't love the world. He's not saying don't love sinners. He's not saying don't be nice to your neighbors. Don't love your neighbors. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't love the things they love. Don't run after the things they run after. This, this uh, book, 1 John, ends, it says, this sums up the whole thing. Where is it? Oh, there it is. 1 John chapter 5. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the heart of what he's saying. The world worships idols. Keep yourself from them, he's saying. Now, if you will, turn with me backwards, back to John chapter 15. Hear this plea from Jesus, this, this encouragement from Jesus. John 15, verse 18. Listen to this application. If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. Man, don't we all want to be liked? Don't we all want to be thought well of? Don't we all have those coworkers, those neighbors, maybe those people in the church, and we just want them to like us? And how hard is it to be hated? Man, it's uncomfortable. But Jesus says, if you follow me, you will be hated by the world. In fact, he says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. You're probably not following Jesus if everyone speaks well of you. If you share the same values and loves as the world. We remember we worship and follow a man who was murdered. <laughs> and our instructions are, pick up your cross and follow me. Our people are the rejects. Our people are the ones in jail for worshiping Jesus. Those are your people. That's your, that, those are your people. Your people are not the ones who are spoken well of by the world. They're not the ones who are popular on social media. It's not our people. If the world hates you, know it hated me first. The world was judged. Another application, flip with me to Romans chapter 12. These are familiar words for a lot of us. I'll read just verse 2, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to. We're not supposed to fit in. Do not be conformed to this world. But, all this negative talk, Pastor Bo, give me something positive to do. Okay, here we go. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does that happen? This right here. We spend time in the Word of God. We ask the Spirit of God, 
help my thinking. All day long, we're taking in the world's thinking. Every advertisement, every sign, every commercial is the world telling you, this matters. Think this way. Go that way. And, and our brother Paul is saying, don't, don't go there. Spend literally more time, like actually spend more time taking in the word of God. Transform your mind. Don't be conformed to the world. Transform your mind. One more. Back to John. I know we're bouncing all around. John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, 33. Here's some comfort from Jesus. I have said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Take heart, Christian. Yes, you will be hated. Yes, you will not fit in. But take heart. The world's not where we want to belong anyways. The world is not our hope anyways. It is not our home. It has been judged. It is morally bankrupt. It is passing away. But Jesus, our Savior, has overcome it. It is good news he is judging the world because that means he's going to bring a new one with no more suffering or sin or sickness or sorrow. And we will fit in in that world. Oh, praise God, that day is coming. But now we take heart. We belong to the one the world crucified. And so Jesus, to go back to our text, John chapter 12, the first thing on his mind as he thought about the cross is he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the second thing he says, this one will hurt a little bit less, thank you God. The devil is cast out. Amen. That's Woo! good news, Amen. The devil is cast out. Do you know why the cross is good? Because the devil is cast out. Look again at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You know, that's a subplot in the whole Bible. Is this war between the ruler of this world, Satan... And, and the seed of Eve. And, and all throughout the Bible, there's this kind of this friction, this war, this tension. But when that seed shows up in the person of Jesus, let me tell you, that war ended on the cross. The decisive, mortal blow happened at the cross. If you remember, when Jesus shows up, he begins to, what does he, what does he start to do? He, he, he begins to undo the domain of Satan. He begins to heal sick people, which was a result of the fall. When we obeyed that 
ruler of this world, when we disobeyed God and we obeyed him, death and sickness entered into all of creation. And so when Jesus shows up, he begins to flex on the ruler of this world. And so people begin to get physically healed as this sign. We're undoing this, this curse. He raises people from the dead. He supernaturally feeds people. Yes, physical food, more important, the, the word of God. We see him actually in his, his apostles. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. I want us to see this. This is how to understand the, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus. What was he doing when he was healing all those people and feeding all those people? What was the point? They were going to get sick again. They were going to die again. They were going to get hungry again. If you were like Lazarus raised from the dead, sorry, Lazarus, you're going to die again. What's the point? Why did Jesus show up doing all this stuff? Well, Luke chapter 10, this is after a missionary journey. He sent out 72 disciples, verses 17 to 18. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's a fun, that's a fun mission trip. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is the beginning of the end for Satan. This is the beginning. This is, this is Satan and the demons recognizing, oh man, a stronger man, someone stronger and greater than us has shown up. The ruler of the world has been tormenting humanity for thousands of years and suddenly these random guys from Galilee start saying, leave, and they have to go. They're like, what is this? It's Satan. He's beginning to fall. That's what the meaning of all these miracles were. But if you will again, turn back with me to John chapter 12. Jesus says, now, that's a key word, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And what he's referring to when he says now is he's speaking of the impending cross. He's hours away from the cross. And at, at that very moment, it's, it's just as when the world rejects Jesus, it's foolishness. Listen, the moment Satan coerced human beings to murder Jesus, the moment Satan thinks, I beat him, I killed him, I murdered the Son of God. Well, turns out <laughs> that was his judgment. That was the moment that his head was mortally wounded. I want us to see that in a couple of scriptures. If you will, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. This is part of the significance of the cross. This is what Jesus means when he says, Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Colossians 2.15. Paul's talking about the cross and how it, it cancels our sin. And in verse 15 he says, Speaking of Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus hung there, naked on a cross, Satan and his demons were like, look at that shame. And what it actually was, was the defeat of Satan and his demons. In the wisdom of God, 
Jesus was putting the devil and his demons to open shame and he triumphed over them. Now, it was a mortal blow. Satan's clock is ticking. The lake of fire is awaiting, but it wasn't immediate. In the strange wisdom of God, God saw fit to have human history continue. And for Satan's kingdom and domain to begin to unravel, if you will, like, like, a, a, like a, a beautiful quilt or a blanket, and one of the key threads got snagged, and it's slowly unraveling, guess what? That's actually what's happening to Satan and his dominion. That's what's happening every time someone believes in Jesus. His kingdom unravels a little more. That is the design in the, in the strange wisdom of God that as Jesus died on the cross, he judged Satan, and yet it's this process. And I want us to, to close with thinking about the Christian life for a minute and see how every step of your Christian life is Jesus flexing on Satan, okay? So I want you to think for a moment about your salvation. When you first heard the gospel, when, when your soul first believed the gospel, and I want us to, to, to turn a, a scripture for every one of these points, if you will, Quickly turn with me to Acts chapter 26, verse 17. Acts chapter 26, verse 17. This is the Apostle Paul talking about his missionary call, his job description from Jesus. And this is what Jesus told Paul to do. Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. <coughs> Paul's saying this while he's in chains in front of a king, by the way. Verse 16 and 17, or 17 and 18, sorry. Actually, where am I? I got lost. Acts 26, 17. Hmm. Okay, yep, that's right. We'll start at 16. This is Jesus speaking. Paul's recalling it. Rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things which you have seen and to those in which I appear to you. Hear this. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Hear this, 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of, of, power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When you were saved, when you heard the gospel, your blind eyes were opened and you turned from following the world and the ruler of this world and, and you saw the beauty of Jesus. And if you are a Christian, that is now your job description. You, you've been sent into this dark world to like rob Satan of people. It's kind of awesome. That's what we're to do. That's what Paul was to do, to speak to them the gospel, that they would turn from darkness to light. Now, what happens when we're saved? It's, it's, the, it's the expression regeneration or the new birth, okay? Um, if you want to turn with me, I want us to see what happens to Satan in our new birth? And that's in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's speaking to Christians here and he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what's going on in the world. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But do you know what happens when you're born again? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it just goes on and on and on, praising what God has done. The point is, when you are born again, you are you are taken from being spiritually dead. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy picture. We were born as spiritual stillborns. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing. But God, being rich in mercy, by the power of his spirit and the gospel, breathes new life into you. You are spiritually born again. No longer enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. No longer with all your heart loving the passions of your flesh. If you're a Christian, you are a miracle. That though you used to be dead following Satan, now you are alive and you love to follow Jesus. I want us to think about our justification for a minute. The next thing that happens when we're born again, the Bible says you are justified. You are justified. I'm going to read a picture of justification from the Old Testament in, in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. This is a vision the prophet Zechariah had of the high priest. And it's a picture of every Christian. And I want you to see the defeat of Satan in this picture, okay? Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. I want you to pause for a second. Until you're a Christian, you have Satan standing at your right hand. And do you know what he does all day long? He accuses you. And do you know what's crazy? He's right. He's right. He's going to point out your sin. He's going to point out your fall. He's going to point out addictions. He's going to point all these things. That's miserable. We've all been there. That's what's going on. But look what happens next. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy 
garments. It's a picture of our sin. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. When you are saved, when you are rescued, there's like a heavenly courtroom. And Satan was standing there accusing you. And he would be right. And yet when you trust in Jesus, your filthy rags are removed. And the righteousness of Jesus is placed on you like the prodigal son coming home who just gets wrapped in the robe of his father. Not because of anything you have done, not because you earned it. It's not your righteousness. In fact, your righteousness contributed to the dirty garments. This is Christ's righteousness. And do you know what that means for Satan? Now when he accuses you, he's wrong. He's a liar. It's not true. And what he'll do is he'll point to a real sin. Well, you did that. But you need to remember, I am now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And when God looks at me, those dirty robes, by the way, those have been removed. Jesus took those robes and he gave me his. And so Satan, when you accuse me, I want to remind you of your judgment on the cross. When you killed Jesus, guess what you did? You actually nailed my sin to the cross. And the righteousness of Jesus has been given to me. Gosh, no longer is it life this miserable, guilt, shame-filled experience. Yes, we may stumble. We may sin, we may give in to temptation, but if you're a son or daughter of God, the Spirit of God and the brothers and sisters around you are going to remind you, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what it means. That's the defeat of Satan. It doesn't get much better than that, but it actually does. Because not only are you justified in Christ, you are also adopted into his family. I'll read briefly Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. That's my daughter crying over there. Colossians, surprise, I can't hear my kids. Colossians chapter 1. Not only have our blind eyes been opened and our spiritual state been born again, and we've been clothed in righteousness. We've been adopted into God's family. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul's going on, giving thanks about what Jesus has done. He says, picking up in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We were once the enemies of God, children of wrath, following Satan, 
and now we have been adopted and we have the inheritance of the Son of God. Whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to you, Christian. You have the inheritance that belongs to the Son of God. One of my favorite pictures of this is, you know, picture a president or picture a king. And picture he's got a busy life and a busy schedule and he's exhausted and he goes to bed and no one dares wake that king up. But do you know who would wake that king up? His three-year-old son would wake his king up and he wouldn't think twice about it and he wouldn't apologize for it. Dad, I need some water. We have that kind of access to the king of kings and the Lord of lords because we're his kids. We're not sons of Satan anymore. We're not daughters of Satan. We are sons of God. We share that inheritance. But it gets better than that. Because as we live this Christian life, if we're honest, it's hard. We struggle. We still hear the accusations of the enemy, those fiery darts. We do fail. Sometimes we do blend into the world. Sometimes like a, like a dog returning to its vomit, we go back to our old sins. This life is difficult. And so what happens next in our salvation is the fancy word sanctification. And what that means is that the Spirit of God in you is working with your new heart to slowly make you actually love God more and love your sin less. And what that is is a daily, slow victory over Satan. It's a slow statement that Satan, I am not yours. I want us to see this in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. Okay, these are hard words. These are warning those who think they're Christians, who claim they're Christians, but they're not living. They're not being sanctified. And listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice, practice, like practicing the piano, like practicing your golf swing, like practicing whatever you do over and over and over again to get better at it, that's what he's saying. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so sanctification, it's, we, we, we ought to be able to look at our lives and see some progress. We're practicing righteousness. I'm not perfected at it. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm practicing. I'm getting, I'm, I'm growing in that direction and I'm not practicing my old sins. That's not to mean we don't stumble occasionally and confess our sin. As 1 John says, if, if you confess your sins, you will have an advocate. But it's we're not making a practice of sinning. If someone looks at our life, if we look back on our life, there's this slow progress away from sin and into sanctification. And that's proof that we no longer belong to Satan, but we belong to God. 
You know, one more mark of, of sanctification I want to speak to is evangelism. The way, we spoke to this, the way God undoes the kingdom of darkness is through his people proclaiming the gospel. That is part of our sanctification and it's also our participation in the kingdom of God advancing in the world. I'll read 2 Timothy chapter 2 for us to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 to 26. This is the Apostle Paul talking to a young pastor. This is maybe one of the last things Paul wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Listen, how, how are you to approach your, your unbelieving co-workers who are saying crazy things about the world? Well, verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Man, when we look around and see this world that is lost, it shouldn't surprise us. Of course they're lost. They're following Satan, doing his will. But we ought to be kind and patient and speaking truth and praying and perhaps God will grant them salvation. Perhaps he will use you to advance his kingdom and to slowly undo the kingdom of darkness. Now, the last thing we're going to say this morning, and the last piece of the Christian life, is perseverance. It's making it to the end. Once a person becomes a child of God, they're, they're born again, they have a new nature, they have the Spirit of God in them, they love righteousness, they're growing in holiness. Let me tell you something. God doesn't kick out his adopted kids. He's not that kind of dad. You can't undo regeneration. You can't undo being born again. I want us to see this in a couple texts here. This is maybe the best news for us. Listen, if God did all of this, but you could undo it, man, where's your hope? Well, your hope's in you not undoing it. John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Hear the words of Jesus. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Not Satan and not yourself. You're his. You are his. Satan's going to try. He's going to do his thing. But you're his. And we're going to close with the greatest chapter in the Bible. And we're going to remind ourselves of this truth in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll read verse 31 to 39. 
What does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up? Well, the world is judged and Satan is cast out. And what does that mean for us? Well, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me just say that is for the sons and the daughters of God. Your salvation, your Christian life, you are a walking display of God's victory over Satan. But I want to close with this. Some of you aren't yet sons and daughters of God. What Jesus said in verse 35, 36 about the darkness and the light, as he says, walk in the light while there is light. Hear Jesus' heart to you. You may not live tomorrow, but right now there's light. Right now you just heard the gospel. Right now you just heard what Jesus did for people just like me and yourself. Don't wait. Don't think about it. Look at me. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and have eternal life. All of these promises are available to you. They're available right now. Well, do I got to become a member here? Do I have to give a certain amount? Do I have to do this or sing this or take? No, you, you believe. Jesus said in verse 35, believe in the light. It means you acknowledge, I have been running from God. I have been a slave to my sin and my passions in this world. But no more, I'm turning from that. And I am clinging to what Christ did when he was lifted up on the cross. I'm claiming that for me. And so God, I ask that your spirit would move right now in all of us, God. For those of us who just need to be reminded and encouraged about what you have done for us, would you do that? Would you minister to us? Lord, for those of us who have yet to trust in you, whose life looks more like the world and we're practicing, we're getting better at our sin by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, would, would we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ? And your word says, and we will be saved. Jesus, we know that the same God who created 
the universe, the planet that we are sitting on right now, who split open the Red Sea, who became a man, who died, who rose again, that same God is is here with us right now. And by his word, Lord, you're speaking to us. You're calling us. You're calling us to to yourself, out of darkness and into light. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the the cross, the news of what you have done, Jesus, that you laid down your life for sinners. You exposed the world for what it is, and you threw Satan out of his place of authority and any who would believe and trust in you. God, we just say, who are we that you would do such a thing for us? And, and the point is not really who are we, it's, it's who are you? From eternity past, you have had this plan and this purpose, and you've worked it out, Lord. We just say, worthy are you. Jesus, you are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We thank you today that we could gather and sing. We could gather to hear your word. Thank you for these saints who are willing to sit outside in Carpinteria and hear your word. Not many things better than that, Lord. So we thank you for your grace to us.